with you, Amy. Is it well with your soul today? If it is not, perhaps the Holy Spirit will minister to you through the reading of the word. If it is, rejoice within that he has, and always does, makes all things work together for the good for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. It's good to be with you today. My name is Kurt Parker. We're going to be in the Word today in 1 Corinthians 15. Before we do that, if you have little ones up through grade 4 and you'd like them to be downstairs in church, a junior church, they can go at this time. Follow Amy and the group out and, and make sure you go and pick them up after we're all done. 1 Corinthians 15, if you turn there. Appreciate Alex leading us in Blessed Be the Tie of the Binds. How many of you have sang that song before, Blessed Be the Tie of the Binds? Just a few. Um, I remember growing up, my home church, my senior pastor, Bill Wright, led that song after communion every time we had communion. He would have us all stand, and we would sing that song as our communion song, had us all join hands and sing. And you can see, if you listen to the words, how appropriate that is, the the mutual journey and the burden bearing and all the things that go on amongst the body of Christ. And so I appreciate Alex bringing all those memories to pass. I haven't heard that song in many, many years, so I appreciate singing it this morning. God's plan for a healthy church is our study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And in particular, we are studying the reality of faith, the power of the gospel, the first 11 verses of 1st Corinthians 15, so you can turn there if you would. And really, we're getting into witnesses of uh, the resurrection, which uh, brings my illustration to light. Witnesses in courtrooms, I just decided to look up funny witnessing in courtrooms, and it wasn't hard to find a lot of listings. Of course, uh, witnesses have been asked many questions in courtrooms to facilitate fact-gathering, and some of the funniest stuff is what the attorneys actually say, which is probably not a surprise to some of you. No, no offense to those who are studying to you know, be attorneys. You certainly can laugh at yourself. If not, probably ought to choose a different profession. But um, the attorney asks this. This is actually a sentence recorded by a court recorder. When he went, had you gone, and had she if she wanted to and were able, for the time being, excluding all the restraints on her not to go, gone also, would he have brought you, meaning you and she, with him to the station? At the end of that question, the opposing counsel says, objection, your honor, that question ought to be taken out and shot. (laughs) Here's an attorney question. Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Witness, no. The attorney, did you check for blood pressure? The witness, no. Attorney, did you check for breathing? Witness, no. Attorney, so then is it possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? The witness, no. The attorney, how can you be sure? The witness, well, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. The attorney, and you can't make this up, okay? This is a real deal. But could could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? And the doctor says, Yes, it's possible that he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. (laughs) Fortunately, we don't have those problems in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, We have some questions that are answered very clearly and 500 plus witnesses who will attest to what Paul has to say. So in the first four verses, as we we won't go through those because we reviewed those last week, the first four verses, Paul makes a case for the power of the gospel uh, from the lives of those in the Corinthian church. And he shows that they understood the gospel and accepted the gospel. It created in their lives a foundation of faith, a secure place to stand with a fixed standard of living. It was a vehicle through which the means or conveyance God uses to bring about salvation and to reveal whether true salvation occurred. 
And so Paul starts very clearly on some very solid foundations and draws to their mind, the Corinthian church, their mind back in chapter 1 when he talked about them as saints and all the benefit that they had as saints. And so Paul just draws to their mind the power of the gospel. And Paul also makes clear in these first four verses that he didn't originate the gospel. Paul deems it of primary importance, uh, the great saving act of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus. Uh, that was delivered to Paul and was of first importance delivered to the church in Corinth and then is still being delivered on down to the church now. Each statement that Paul reiterated to them together really formed the foundation of saving faith. Uh, as we have seen, that must be believed and confessed for salvation to occur. We've gone through all those passages that really uh, shore that up for us in our minds. They, they are what must be presented then on the other side, not just what needs to be responded to, but what needs to be presented for a proper hearing of the gospel because they are the vehicle through which the Holy Spirit goes to work and draw someone to salvation. This is the fundamental set of facts on which the church was established. The giving out of these facts is the main business of believers submitting in obedience to the Great Commission. Now we've covered all of those things, and when we see then in verses 5 through 8, we really get to the witnesses, uh, eyewitness testimony of Jesus' resurrection. And everything else really seems to rise and fall on that. The greater testifying to the lesser as Dr. Harry, Gary Habermas used to say at Liberty, if the resurrection is true, then everything else Jesus said was true and everything else that happened and is attested to by Jesus is true. And so Paul keys on this, and really the whole chapter is about the resurrection. And in case you have any questions, really you can kind of see Paul's mind. In case you have any questions about the resurrection, because that's the main thing, uh, then let me introduce you to 500 plus people who saw him. And so you can see how Paul's mind works here. He really seems to start then, as we saw just last week, with quality, and then he moves on to quantity, and then beginning in verse 8, the least likely of, of witnesses for the resurrection, and that's himself and James, and we'll look at that today. And remember, as we mentioned before, uh, this is the oldest proclamation of the resurrection, likely even before the earliest gospel of Matthew. So uh, this is the first information of the order of his appearance, and we talked about it last week. Paul doesn't take into everybody that saw him, but he takes in an order of appearance that's very important to establish the facts of the resurrection. That's what Paul's trying to do here. So keep in mind Paul's own desire to establish the resurrection as a fact on which everything else sits. So look, if you would, to the last part of verse 5 in your copy of God's Word. It starts here, and that he appeared to Cephas. See where we are? And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, verse 6. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then verse 7, then he appeared to James, and then to all, to all the apostles. So you get this. Uh, quality, then quantity, and then least likely. Now, Paul uses a definitive term here. He says he appeared. That's very important. He uses the term four times. He actually physically appeared in sight, so bodily resurrection. He appeared before them. It's implied two more times besides the four times it's used. So this isn't rumor or gossip. Uh, Jesus is intentionally revealing himself to people so there could be no doubt that he, re that he was resurrected from the grave uh, animated corpse walking around among them alive. So they didn't expect him to be alive. They weren't walking around looking for him. So this was a surprise to everyone. Okay, so uh, under quality, we had Cephas or Peter, and that's what we saw in Luke 24, 33. Now you remember that the other appearances of Jesus to individuals are given a good bit of detail, and we can read those in the Gospels. But his appearance to Peter, we don't get any details about that appearance, just that it occurred. And we looked at that, maybe some of the reasons for that last time. We won't go back through those again. You can check online in your archives and look at that for yourself. Somewhere along the line, though, right after Jesus came out of the grave, he went right to Peter. 
And then the last part of verse six, uh, verse five says, then to the 12. And so between our passages from Luke 24 and John 20, it appears that we have that record. But the issue here really is quality and credibility. That's what Paul is trying to establish. In Luke 24, Jesus appears to them and then he speaks to them and he says this, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. So he reminds the, the disciples that I already told you this. This is what I told, what said to you was gonna happen. That all the things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So as Paul says, uh, Christ, was, Christ died according to the scriptures and was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's exactly what Jesus is saying too. Listen, it's already been told about me in the scriptures, which Paul would have been referring to. And Jesus says that too. All the words I spoke to you, all attested to what the prophets and those who've come before had said and the law. And then verse 45, he says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Just to pause right there. How many wish we could always have that, right? I mean, that is, that's the desire of everybody who reads the Bible, isn't it? Open my mind to understand the scriptures because they're not always clear and they require a lot of study. And it's really great to see that he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And the eternal state, among many things that we can look forward to, is that fact right there, that we begin to understand the scriptures at a greater depth. And so what a joy. He said that to the witnesses on the Emmaus Road, too. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. They're like, wow, bingo. Uh, they began to put it all together. So he does that here for the disciples. So he opens their mind to understand the scriptures. And then verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written. So again, according to the scriptures, as Paul would say that, thus it's written that he, Christ, would suffer, rise again on the third day. So basically the summary of what Paul's been saying. Verse 47, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name. So the gospel is very clear. Here's what you present. That's, that's the important part. They get the hearing. And then how do they have to respond? Well, they're going to have to repent they have to confess all the things that the, the word says about them, that scripture says about them, that God says, that Jesus says about himself, about them. They confess, they repent for the forgiveness of sins and would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So here's the gospel, here's what you have to do. Beginning from Jerusalem, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. So 1 Corinthians 15, 5 says that Jesus appeared to the 12 and he met with the disciples and he explained the scriptures to them and they became witnesses. Everyone knew these guys. These are the guys who are articulating right theology. And out of that theology, the church is going to be born. And they saw the living Christ back from the dead. And they were transformed because of that experience. And Paul really affirms to the Corinthian church that Jesus' resurrection was not some cleverly devised tale. He appeared physically before these people. And they are witnesses of that fact. So Paul starts with these guys. He wants to give people every reason to believe. Every verification. It's not something done in secret. not something you just have to... Check your brain at the door and just decide, okay, I'm going to just do this. Listen, Jesus appeared. He appeared before these guys. You know who they are. You can go talk to them. That's what we're going to get right now. Go, go see them. They're still around. So he wants every, every reason to believe, every verification. And so he starts and acts as with many convincing proofs. So Luke says, listen, he went around and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive and that he was the Christ. So he wants people to know. So he starts with some very well-known people and they see him alive. Look at verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 15, your copy of God's word, if you would. Verse 6 says, After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Let's pause right there. So we started with, with quality witnesses that everyone had heard about, very, people very prominent uh, in the lives of the church, people who knew, people knew who these guys were, very well known, would continue to be well known 
and we move on to quantity of witnesses, not that they're any less valuable, but they're just a big bulk of them. Paul doesn't name all of them. And now the question is asked, okay, so when did that occur? 500 people, because the key phrase is, at one time. So it can't just be 500 people here and there, three here, four there. It's a group. He says, listen, 500 people together saw Christ resurrected. So when did that occur? And the answer is, we don't really know for certain. We have some guesses, and we'll give you some to kind of shore that up. We know it did occur, obviously, because Paul verifies it occurred, and he places, this is important, the 500 as able to be interviewed. So obviously he's not making this up. Listen, 500 at one time, so you can go and ask him, hey, were you with a big group of people when you saw Jesus resurrected? They'd have to say, yes. And did you see Jesus bodily in front of you? Yes, we did. So they're putting out, they're being putting out, put out there so that they can be asked. But the, the idea there exactly is where it occurred, we don't know. But it's likely that it occurred in Galilee. So I'd like you to hold your place here, turn to Matthew 28. Will you do that? Because there's some clues there that are found in the final chapter of Matthew and the first chapter of Acts that kind of lend itself to helping us understand where this probably occurred. So Matthew 28, verse 1, is where you're going to go right now. Hold your finger, because in just a moment we'll be back to our passage. I want to use some of these illustrations to help shore up our understanding. Matthew 28, verse 1. Starts this way. Verse 1, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So this is Sabbath is Saturday during that time, Sunday now morning. And so uh, it began to dawn. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Verse 2, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Verse 3, and his appearance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. Verse 4, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So they passed out, terrified. Verse 5, and the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Verse 6, he's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Isn't that a marvelous passage? Now, we're going to read that again in, what, six or eight weeks during Easter, but it's just a marvelous passage to read any time. He is not here, he is risen, just like he said. And that's just such a comforting, it's a comforting uh, series of sentences there. I know you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he's risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Verse 7. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So he's going to go ahead of you into Galilee. That's important. Verse 8. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. Verse 9. And behold... Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. And then we get to the narrative, and just hold right there, uh, the, perpetuated by the chief priests and the soldiers that the disciples stole Jesus' body away while the soldiers slept. And he pays a great deal of money and says, don't worry about it. When it comes to the commander, we'll cover for you. You won't be killed. All right. So he just covers all of that, that perpetuated idea that the body was stolen. And then verse 16 and following says this, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. So they did what the, lady, what the women said that they were to do, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Stop right there. So perhaps, then, 
on the hills of Galilee, he was seen by more than 500 people, perhaps. You know, once again, we don't know, but here he is openly proclaiming and talking to his disciples and teaching them. It's very likely then that that's where he was seen. And they see him, and they worship him, and some are unsure, and that's okay because the Bible is honest. It doesn't say, and everybody believed right up front, and nobody had a problem. The Bible doesn't have to, to uh, you know, kind of mess that up. It just says, listen, and some were unsure, and that's okay, and some saw him, and for a time they were doubtful, but on the power of his resurrection, he commissions his followers. And here the key is, 500 at one time, so perhaps it was there that they saw him. Now, if you would, just turn over to Acts chapter 1. Do that if you would. Perhaps it was in Galilee. Now, I'm going to get to why it probably wasn't in Jerusalem uh, in just a minute, but just look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Acts 1 says this, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles, whom he had chosen. Verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So for a number of days, he is in Galilee. Uh, we don't know exactly how many days, but for a number of days, he is teaching. So it's very likely the opportunity for 500 at one time to see him is during that time. Jesus could have been and probably was seen by lots of people over that period of time. Additionally, it seems like unlikely that the event happened in Jerusalem because Luke tells us then, look at verse 12, when his disciples are returning from their commissioning. So Jesus has commissioned them. They're returning to Jerusalem and uh, he has ascended. And verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And so there's a certain amount of time that they can, they can walk on the Sabbath. And so they are walking back towards to Jerusalem. Verse 13, when they had entered the city, they came up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter, John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Verse 15, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about, here it is, 120 persons was there together. And so he goes on to talk to them about some things and, and picking a new uh, person for, uh, as a disciple. But here's the thing. He goes on, he sets up a plan to replace Judas Iscariot. But you can see, then, that there's only about 120 people here at the beginning of the Jerusalem church. And Paul says 500 of the brethren together at one time. So what we don't have then listed here is 500 brethren. Now, it's possible as he worked, walked his way through Jerusalem that other people saw him. But they weren't the brethren that Paul is talking about. They would have been unredeemed. People perhaps glanced and said, wow, he looks familiar. Or whatever they're saying. And there's a big crowd going along behind him. That's kind of weird. But whatever it was, what we have in Jerusalem is listed with the disciples, about a total of 120 people. So not enough to qualify then for us to say, okay, that must have happened in Jerusalem because there wasn't a large following. But in Galilee, there was. And he spent much time there. And so likely, it's perhaps likely that he was there. Okay, so... Paul had a large quantity of witnesses, and Paul says that most of them are still around to ask. So you can, you can uh, go and, and talk to them and see if Jesus was truly alive. And just this final note, he says this. So at the time of Paul's writing, he says some of them are still alive. So this is maybe 25 years after Jesus has ascended. They're still around. Go talk to them. And then he says this. But some, he says, have fallen asleep. Now, I think that's an interesting, I just want to talk about that uh, just a minute. Uh, you can turn back, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. 
It's a, it's a great euphemism for the thing that terrorizes the entire fallen world. What is it? What terrorizes the entire world? Death. Why do people go to the health club? They don't want to die, right? Why do they not eat bacon, you know, five days a week or whatever? Whatever. You don't want to die. People are avoiding dying. They want to do the best they can to avoid dying. They're doing everything they can, gene therapy, all the stuff that can happen to avoid dying. That terrorizes the entire world. Except here, what do we see used to represent what the whole world worries about? And which it's the enemy no one can resist. It's the last enemy that's put away here at the end of this chapter. Here's the thing. It's the horror that most people in the ancient world uh, have held in fear. It's become for the Christian, though, because of the, res the resurrection, nothing more than sleep. That's how, the, that's how the scripture refers to it. And I love that. Uh, he has fallen asleep. We need to remember that for those of us who are believers and have died. And even those who are non-believers, that's still used of them because everyone's resurrected. Remember? Everyone gets an eternal body. Some resurrected for damnation, some resurrected for eternal life. And so it is falling asleep because it's a temporary resting spot. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 uses it as well. It says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, Paul says to them, about those who are asleep, there again, those who already died before Jesus has come back, uh, so that you'll not grieve as, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. They're not going to miss out. And so, again, using the fallen asleep a couple of times there to refer to death. Now, look at verse 7, 1 Corinthians 15, if you would where we get one of the least likely of the witnesses. It says this, then he appeared to James. The second name we're given in the list here, we got Peter, and then we, got, and then we had the, the 12, and then we have 500 at one time, and then we have this next name, and that's James. And we see James linked with Peter in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, where we see this. Paul goes up, and he's describing a conversation uh, there where, where he's going to go up, and after his conversion, he's going to go up and have a conversation with a couple of people in Jerusalem. And here's what it says. Then after three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So again, Cephas is there in Jerusalem working with the church. James obviously is there, becomes very prominent in the Jerusalem church. So just to note this, um, and I'm going to say this again in a minute and give you some support, but to note this, it's possible that this appearance to the Lord's brother led to his conversion and through him to that of the other brothers. And the reason why I say that is because in John chapter 7, verse 5, we have this note for not even his brothers were believing in him. So in the middle of Jesus' ministry, his brothers were not believing he said, who he said he was. And Mark 3.21 says that after hearing him speak, this is very important, in the middle of his ministry here, um, his family tries to come up and get to him, and it says that they were going to get him because they said he had, quote, lost his senses. So he's speaking about who he is. They think, hey, you're just, you're just one of us. You're just part of the family here. Who do you think you are? He's lost his mind. Let's go get him and take charge of him. And so the family doesn't believe. James doesn't believe. And so this is a very unlikely witness here that Paul is going to become, make, become prominent. And I think it's important that he brings this witness in because this is a very skeptical witness. This is somebody in the middle of his ministry is not believing in his own half-brother's claims to who he says he is. In fact, it's the other side. He's like, take charge of him. He's lost his mind. Let's just kind of put him away and keep him out of public so he won't say any of these things that embarrass everybody. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we see Jesus' mother 
and brothers, we just read that just a second ago, listed among the believers who were meeting in the upper room for prayer. So the disciples come back from Galilee, they meet in Jerusalem in the upper room. Who's there? Mother, brothers. And they're all meeting there for prayer. They're part of the 120 people in Jerusalem that's part of this early church. So something happened in between the life of Jesus and his ministry and his ascension into heaven. And what was it? Paul says he appeared to James, the Lord's brother. And I think we could say it's likely then that his resurrection and his appearance to James listed here is what made the difference. Because he's a very skeptical, unlikely witness. A witness right out of the family who up until this point didn't believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. And if his own family didn't believe him, then it's going to be really tough to convince anyone else. So Jesus sought out James. Uh, Jesus appears to James in the resurrection form and James believed. And the resurrection convinced him, get this, when apparently all the rest of the stuff didn't convince him. So Jesus is going around, he's saying who he is, and he's saying, if you don't believe what I say, at least believe the works that I do. And James is not believing, but when you get up to the point where he sees Jesus in his resurrected body, he believes. So he didn't believe with all the other stuff, but James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he says in James 1.1, James, as he introduces himself in the letter, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a huge difference between his brothers don't believe and they're going to take charge of him because he's lost his mind and kind of hide him from public because he's too embarrassing to I'm a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas saw and believed, James saw and believed, and Jesus says to you in John 20 verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you have believed, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Jesus is speaking to Martha after the death of Lazarus and he says to her in John 11:23. Your brother will rise again. Speaking of Lazarus, verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then this question, do you believe this? And Jesus says to Martha, I'm the reason he's going to rise. I'm the resurrection that you're thinking about. Do you believe this, even though it hasn't happened yet? And the question still stands. Post-resurrection, blessed are you who believe and have not seen. Do you believe this, that I'm the resurrection and the life? That's still the key question, see, for salvation. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Those are key elements in salvation. And then this last part of verse 7. So he appears to James. Look back in your copy of 1 Corinthians 15. He appears to James and then to all the apostles. And all the apostles just puts emphasis on nobody was missing, referring to the 11 remaining. And this may refer to an appearance in, like in John 20, verse 26, but it's likely referring, because of the order in the timeline, to the time of his ascension to heaven. It's likely that that's that passage we read just a minute ago where he is speaking to all of them and gives them their commission, and then he rises up out of their sight. And the angel comes and says, why are you still staring into heaven? Go back to Jerusalem and wait just like he told you to wait. So it's likely that's the time it's referring to just because of the order of the people he's talking about and likely where it all occurred. So again, Paul does not give a complete list of witnesses, but he gives enough to show that the fact is extremely well attested. So reliable is the evidence that it has to be accepted and Paul can go on from there. Now let's look at the last part of the least likely witnesses. Look at verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 8, and last of all, so he appears to James, then to all the apostles, then verse 8, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Paul is speaking of himself. 
Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Let's stop right there. Now let's break verse 8 apart. There's a lot of really great, I think, very relevant principles in here that we can apply as we think about ministry, as we think about Paul, and as he adds himself as the least likely witness right here at the end. Paul says this in verse 8. He says, and last of all, as to one untimely born. Now, the apostle puts his vision on the road to Damascus, and this is very important to understand right from the beginning. He puts his vision on the road to Damascus on the same level as the other resurrection appearances, even though it was separated by some time. He sees himself as the last in the line of those who have seen the resurrected Lord. So, and he says this, he uses this word last of all, that's the Greek adjective, eschatos. It's the word we, we get our word eschatology, the study of the last days or the study of the last times. Really, it means the last in succession or the end of the time or the end of the days or the last in time and place. So I am eschatos, the last one. And Paul places himself as the last to see the resurrected Christ. Now, as a footnote to that, I want you to just kind of tuck this away because I think it, it warrants some more study. The way the adjective is used elsewhere in the scriptures, along with how it's used here, it creates some question about those who are seeing the resurrected Christ of modern times. And there's some report of that in other cultures. And I think we need to take what Paul says here and the way he uses this adjective and the way we see it in many other places and use that as some evidence that perhaps would, would uh, undermine just a, just a general claim that we saw the resurrected Christ, and that's why we came to faith. Paul says, I'm the last. And so, for whatever that's worth, I think it's important to look at. But anyway, Paul says, he appeared to me too, and he writes these words, as to one, he says, untimely born. And Paul uses a simile here with the use of the word like. So I'm like as to one untimely born. So then he refers to himself like a miscarriage. That's the noun. Ectromati, which is the word for a miscarriage or a, a premature birth. So what he's saying here is this, his life and the way it has happened is almost seems like he's an anomaly. Paul says, listen, I was the last, but I really seem like an anomaly in comparison to all the other disciples. And perhaps he's thinking when he says untimely birth, he could be referring to the fact that the rest of the apostles were with Jesus for three years. And so they could grow in their knowledge of him in the proper time sequence. And so the gestation period, if you will, if you want to use the same type of, of, uh, of figures of speech, the gestation period was a lot longer for everybody else. And Paul, he's on the road to Damascus, and he's going to persecute the church, and Christ appears to him, and boom, he calls him, and he's an apostle. So Paul says it's kind of like a miscarriage, kind of like an untimely birth. Um, I'm just kind of thrown into the mix. And so Paul's just dropped in here with little time to come up to speed, so an abnormal process, and perhaps that's why he uses the words. And in light of the fact that Paul persecuted the church and later corrected some of the other apostles, Paul just says here, here I am, I'm Paul, born at the wrong time, unworthy, least likely, but he's not diminishing his apostleship because he goes and corrects them, he understands who he is, Christ gave him the job, he gave him the, this uh, position, and so he, he takes it fully, but he just has the right perspective about it. Now look at the next section. He appeared to me also. So he says, last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And you can kind of hear the amazement in his voice. In other words, like, you know, I was picked along with Peter and the 12. I mean, that's amazing. You know, I was picked among more than 500 who were able to hear Jesus' 
Jesus teaching Galilee and saw him in resurrected form. I was picked along with Jesus' brother James and all the apostles who witnessed him going up to heaven. And no doubt Paul is thinking this, you know, yes, James, who became one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, who, who appointed some deacons, and I was there, and one of them was stoned to death, and I agreed. I'm thinking of Stephen. So here's James in charge of Jerusalem church. Very, has a, a, a lot of influence. Jesus appeared to him. They appoint some deacons. And what happens? Paul's there. He's there uh, while they're stoning Stephen to death. And he's just agreeing with it. So Paul's just thinking, man, this is, this is just so incredulous. I'm just so untimely born. It just seems so incongruous that I would actually be dropped into this mix and given this position. So Paul says in verse 9, look there if you would. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. So that really, that's where Paul's mind goes next. He says, so, and last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me also, and immediately he goes to his unworthiness. And he says this, for I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And the pronoun I here is in the emphatic. So the idea here is that just, it's just put there as Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to put the attention on Jesus, not on him. In other words, I wasn't chosen because of any merit on my part. In fact, quite the contrary, I am, he says, the least of the apostles. And that word is of very little importance. I'm of very little importance in the, whole, in the whole scheme of things. And that's a great overall perspective, isn't it, as we work in the ministry? Very in the grand scheme of things, we have very little importance, don't we? And Christ is in the emphatic. He's the one who's the, who, who has all the attention. Now, as Paul says, the least of the apostles, this isn't a grade scale between the apostles. So, you know, you know, James gets an A and Peter gets an A and I get a C or whatever. That's not a grading scale about how they performed as an apostle. He isn't inferior to the other apostles. He was called by Christ to the full measure of the apostolic office. And he could say in 2 Corinthians eleven five, he could say, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, verse 6, but even if I am unskilled in speech, so even if I can't speak very well, Yet I'm not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we've made this evident to you all in all things. Paul says, listen, I've written to you. You understand I have the, this authority. You can see the authority in my own life. So I'm not, I'm not less than the other apostles. I'm just the least of them. I'm of the least importance. In the grand scheme of things, uh, I'm least important. So it isn't an actual ranking, but his own humble evaluation. And then he says, and not fit to be called an apostle. Not fit to be called an apostle. Now, a couple of things that I want to draw to your mind. Really, two principles as we think about that. Because he says this, I'm not fit to be called an apostle. Why is that, Paul? Well, because I persecuted the church of God. And we know from reading Paul's letters just how much he loves the church and sacrifices himself for her. And I don't think that that could ever fall on a deaf ear. If you read through Paul's writings, you know how much he cares for the church and how much he gives to make sure that the church uh, is flourishing. And of course, you know, First and Second Corinthians is because God loves the church and wants a healthy church that Paul is carried along to write all these things to the church in Corinth so they can be corrected and, and walk in a place where the Lord can bless them. So Paul loves the church. So how much heartache must that have caused him as he thought about that throughout the early part of his, his life, how he diligently uh, persecuted the church? And so the memory of his prior life must have been very painful. And so what Paul means with this opening, opening sentence is that his character as a persecutor had made him evaluate himself as the least of them. Indeed, he was not worthy to be an apostle at all. That's how he looked at himself. See? And we see all this through Paul's writing, and we'll look at it again in a moment. Two principles, though, that Paul embraces that keep his ministry in balance, and I think that's important for us as well. And you can copy these down in your, in your notes if that's helpful for you. Number one, 
First thing to keep in mind is the wonderful opportunity for the unique ministry that is connected to his office. Paul had understood that he had a unique ministry given to him through the apostleship, and that ministry was very important. It was the highest office in the early church. Christ called him to it and gave him the office, and so he is an apostle in the fullest sense of the word. So the marvelous nature of the fact that he has ministry. So regardless of what your past is, here's an application, okay? As we think of what does the word of God say, what does it mean by what it says, how does that apply to me? Here it is. Regardless of your past, whatever you have done, if you've been redeemed, you've been given and equipped with spiritual gifts and opportunity for ministry, and that by itself is a reason to rejoice. Okay, regardless of what's happened in the past, regardless of what you've done, you've been given a unique opportunity for ministry. And then, balanced with that, to keep us from getting over the top, Paul had a deep sense of unworthiness because he's the chief of sinners, as he described himself in 1 Timothy 1.15, because he persecuted the church of God, which is the body of Christ. Now, perhaps some of you didn't persecute the church of God. Now, there would be other places where we could go in the world if we preach this message. There may be many who sat in there now redeemed who persecuted the church of Christ. It, it doesn't matter, does it? Because you've been given a wonderful opportunity for ministry. You've been completely forgiven of your sin. But in balance, you keep yourself in check by saying, I'm not that important. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter who I am. Just the fact that I've been given ministry and the joy of doing that ministry is so important. And I believe that's a model very important for, one, for us to apply. On the one hand, we've been called by Jesus to a wonderful and unique ministry opportunity with varying gifts, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, and varying ministries and varying outcomes, just depending on how you're gifted and where you are and all the stuff that comes along with that. We're called saints. We're adopted into God's family. And on the other hand, then, we balance out those opportunities with love and humility when we remember who we were and who we would be apart from the grace of God. And so that's a really good balance. Ministry opportunity to fully give yourself to, balanced by you're not that important, and you know, ultimately, if God hadn't intervened, where would you be? And how were you before? And that keeps a great balance. All forgiven, we don't, we don't dwell on that. We don't say, okay, I'm just, you know, I can't do any ministry, I'm not worthy. God says, here's your ministry, and here's your gifting, and here's your opportunity, and the outcomes will vary amongst you. And yes, you're redeemed from the chains of your sin. And that's a great chance for thanksgiving, and rejoicing, and humility. Okay, so that's a great, I, th I love that, that Paul expressed that, because that's so applicable to us. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 10, and he makes really three important statements here that are very relevant to modern ministry. Look, let's look at them. Let's see, we need to go here. Look at verse 10, if you would, with me. Three important statements. Here's the first one. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you agree with that? That's a great thing to remember. By the grace of God, you are what you are. Not because of any merit on your part, not because you're uh, excess of intellect or, or because you were very moral or you haven't done any you know, bad things or your testimony isn't that exciting because you weren't saved out of alcohol and drug abuse or whatever, okay? You are what you are by the grace of God. Paul freely ascribes what his life was like before and what his life is like now and what it will be like in the future to the grace of God. He can't change his past. He can't change that he's an apostle and a bondservant of Christ. His story is his story, and yours is yours, whatever it is. So Paul just says, listen, I am what I am by the grace of God. The Lord takes your life as you yield it to him, just like he did with Paul. As you yield your life to him, he weaves it all together. And Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, 
to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It was grace alone that transformed Paul from the persecutor into a zealous preacher who bore on his body, he says, the marks of Christ. He has nothing that Christ has not accomplished for him through grace. And we would be wise to remember that we who are, we are who we are and we have the ministry in a greater or lesser degree that we have to the extent as a result of the grace of God. Let me say that again. That was confusing. That needs to be taken out and shot. As we would be wise to remember, we are who we are and we have the ministry in a greater or lesser extent as a result of the grace of God. That's who we are. I am who I am because of the grace of God. The ministry I have is as a result of God's work in me. And that's it. And that's where I start. And here's the second one. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. <laughs> Far from being without effect, and that's what it means, fruitless. Okay, like he said, unless you, unless you show that salvation was without effect. So you said something in the past, remember we looked at that, but you haven't continued in the gospel and your, your confession was without effect. So Paul says, his grace toward me did not prove vain. So far from being without effect or fruitless or empty, Paul's life in Christ continued to bear fruit. The grace here is the grace of Christ appearing to Paul to redeem him. That's what he's talking about. Turn his life around and call him into the apostolate. And again, I think it's important as we think about how does that apply to me, it's important to evaluate the outcome of your salvation. Are you where the Lord wants you to be? Just ask these questions in your mind, okay? Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? These are questions I asked. As I said this this week, I just started, I started asking myself questions. Where, where am I? You know, let's take, a, let's take a, an inventory. Are you where the Lord wants you to be? Are you bearing, here's another one, are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Are you carrying out the Great Commission? See, these are very simple commands from the Lord to us. Is his grace toward you vain? Or is it fruitless? Or is it bearing fruit? Are you using, here's again, are you using the spiritual gifts for the benefit of the church? Are you? If you spot-checked your life right now or over the course of your life, is his grace toward you proving vain? There's another question. See, because Paul can say, his grace toward me did not prove vain. And we see the list of those things that help us understand about Paul. But nobody sees ours too much, right? I mean, they see the, benefit, the fruit of our life over time. But those are the questions you can ask. What's the outcome of my salvation? Am I where the Lord wants me to be? Am I bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Am I carrying out the Great Commission? Those are three very important ones. We've looked at them very recently. Are you using your spiritual gifts for the benefit of the church? So what ministry are you involved in, and what spiritual gifts do you believe that you're using that benefit other people? See, Very important. But by grace of God, I am what I am. My story is my story. It's accomplished by the Lord, and I give him glory for it. I'm not that important. Number two, his grace toward me did not prove vain. Number three, but I labored even more than all of them. And that labored, very important, ekopiasa, aorist, active, indicative verb. The idea is labored is working to the point of weariness. That's the idea in the Greek. So at any point in time, with a continuing present impact, Paul worked more often to the end of his strength. That's what he's saying. I worked more often than everyone else to the very end of my physical ability to work. He doesn't say that he accomplished more. Okay, so get, make sure you differentiate between the two. He doesn't say, I accomplished more in my ministry than anyone else. He just says, I worked harder. I worked myself to the extent of my physical ability more often. So here's the thing. Paul gave himself completely to the ministry that God had given him. He worked hard and committed himself 
to the completion of the tasks. And again, I think it's important to evaluate the effort you put in to the ministry God has given you. So say you come to the second point and that uh, grace has not proved vain and you are working. Now here's the question, how hard are you working in that task? Because remember when we looked at, at Romans chapter 11, yeah, chapter 11 or chapter, chapter 12. We got to chapter 12 and to do your ministry with diligence, remember? And we just had this checklist of what the Holy Spirit was doing in our life. We kind of worked through there. Do we do our ministry with diligence? So in other words, as you do your ministry, evaluate the effort you put into the ministry God's given you. Can you say that you toil to the point of weariness as God has entrusted you with it? Do you take responsibility to do it diligently? Do you own it, as we say a lot of times around here? Not that it's yours by itself and that you are somehow preeminent in that ministry. The fact is that when you take on the ministry, does it take a lot to knock you off of the ministry? Because listen, when you give yourself to ministry in that way, it'll be much like Paul's ministry. You're going to have a lot of bumps in the road and a lot of people who discourage you and whatever happens to come along to get in the way. The fact of the matter is, Paul said, listen, I labored even more than all of them. And I think it's just in general a good reminder that a diligent application of yourself to ministry is something that the scriptures require. And it's not isolated only to 1 Corinthians 15. So, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me did not prove vain. And I labored even more than all of them. And great checks on our own life as we think about that. And then Paul again returns to the source, even of his strength and of perseverance. He says this, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. And so he just wants to remind them, listen, in the middle of all that, in the middle of the, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In the middle of his grace towards me did not prove vain, but there's fruit being more. And in the middle of I labored to exhaustion more often than those who are around me. In the middle of all that, it's not me. It's the grace of God with me. So he just reminds them it's not him. The God, grace of God is working through him. It doesn't mean he, they're working any less. He's working any less. It doesn't mean that there's less fruit because, you know, just do it, God, whatever. Because God's commands are for us and not for him, okay? So when we have commands from the Lord, then we act on them. We understand what they are, we do them. And so the fact of the matter is, he says, but in all of that, it's the grace of God at work in me. Through his beginnings, you know, as you think about Paul's beginnings, they were very unpromising. I mean, standing there holding the coach while Stephen's stoned, and he's a deacon in the church in Jerusalem, that's not a good start. And most of us would say our start was probably not as bad as that. And perhaps it was, perhaps it was worse, it doesn't matter. Because you are who you are, and your story is what your story is, and God will weave that into this marvelous, marvelous thing that he's going to do, and you're just seeing the underside where all the knots and ties are, and then one day you're going to flip it around, the Lord's going to let you see all of that stuff all woven into this beautiful tapestry of your Christian life, and how all that stuff worked together for good for you. So Paul's beginnings were not that promising, and yet the grace of God has enabled him to accomplish a remarkable amount of work. And although he put the work, he put in the work, and he made the sacrifice to see the task through, he makes it clear that it was God's grace at work accomplishing his purposes. Now, just, just, a, just a summary, because we're almost, we're almost out of time. I just want to do this. I want you to remind you how Paul was very task-oriented. And whether he was at work at Ephesus, working and toiling there, and he finished the job God had given him to do, and Acts 19.20 says this, so... The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing, and Paul was involved with that. Yet not I, Paul says, but Christ working through me. Okay, the grace of God with me. His grace didn't prove vain. I labored more than all of them, right? Um, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But here he goes. The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. 
Verse 21, now after these things were finished, so Paul is working here in Ephesus, and he comes to the end of the task the Lord has given him. Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, and after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, he's saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul is constantly thinking about the next thing the Lord would have him to do. So he's not like finishing a task and saying, okay, I put my time in, you know, I'm out for a while. He's not doing that. He's just diligently using his spiritual gifts to minister and build the kingdom. And he just, once he finishes one, and many of you are just like that, you know, I, I won't mention anything because it'll embarrass you, but you, you just go from one thing to the other. You finish something up and boom, next thing I you know, you're signed up for something else and you're ready to roll. And that, that's exactly the kind of uh, effort that scripture prescribes for us and gives us as an example. Working hard for the ministry the Lord gave him, then Paul's looking and planning for the next one. Or if he was just planning on coming to Rome, uh, you know, and ministering there, and after going to Jerusalem and taking an offering to them, so he's got all this stuff lined up, I'm going to collect this offering, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to give it to them, and what happened in Jerusalem? He got misidentified as going into the temple with people who weren't, who weren't uh, Jews, and he gets persecuted. I mean, things didn't go smoothly, even though he's doing exactly what the Lord wanted him to do. And so he's going to go to Jerusalem, he takes an offering to them, and as he indicated at the end of his letter to the church in Rome, he's going to, then he's going to, he says, but now I'm going, to, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm serving the saints. From Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor. So we saw in Acts he was going to go there, he collected an offering there, he's heading to Jerusalem, he's going to, he's going to minister to the saints there. And yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them, also in material things. So it just gives kind of a background. Okay, here's why these churches supported the church in Jerusalem. They benefited from the spiritual gifts. I'm going to take these offerings over and help the saints in Jerusalem. And so then he says, verse 28, Therefore, when I finish this, again, task-oriented, isn't he? And I have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I'll go on by way of you to Spain. So when I finish these two tasks the Lord's given me, I'm ready to move on to a new task. And then he tells Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, 5, he says this, but you, and Timothy is his son in the faith, but you be sober in all things, so your right mind about you as you look at things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Paul told Timothy what to do and then modeled that hard work. Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill the ministry the Lord has given you. And then he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And that's really the idea of an illustration of what that looks like, see? A pouring out on the ground, as David did for the water that his men brought to him after they broke through the line. He just poured it out to the Lord as an offering. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Is that what you'll be able to say? And whether you say it or not, more importantly, will the Lord be able to say it of you? What are you laboring in? What are you laboring for? Because these are all very valid questions as we think about our own life. Will you be able to say that? I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. Think about Epaphroditus. You know, we talk about this in the Be the Church class fellow soldier, fellow worker, laborer, came to the point of death, even in his labor, right up to the door. This is a layperson, Paul says. You know, these are the kinds of illustrations we get, and we have them in the church today. I'm not saying that we don't. There'll be many, many who the Lord will say, hey, you 
You fought the good fight. You finished the course. You kept the faith. You endured hardship. You were, you were sober-minded in all things. You did the work of an evangelist. You fulfilled your ministry. See, These are very important questions. Not just coasting in, see. And then Paul closes out this section. He says this in verse 11. Look there if you would with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So when it comes right down to it then, Paul says, there's but one thing each of those who experience the grace of God labor in, and that is the gospel. Everyone who experienced this changing grace that comes through the gospel labor in that gospel. Whether it was I or they, so we preach, so you believe. It's the same no matter who preaches it. Paul had stressed that he had received the gospel. He didn't originate it. He spelled out the facts of the gospel very clearly, in particular, the strong witness for the resurrection, because on that, everything else stands. And now he can say that this is the common message of the preachers. K. Raceman, we preach, present, active, indicative. So it's still going on. We proclaim. It's still going on. It's going on now. It was going on then. When you proclaim Christ, this is the message. This is the way both Paul and the other apostles habitually preach. This is the authentic gospel, that which the apostles make it their habit to proclaim. And then he says, you believed. Aorist active indicative. You put your trust in this. Epistusate. You put your trust in this. In the past, with continuing results in the present. You called on the name of the Lord. You confessed with your mouth and believed with your heart. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is the list of facts that must be embraced. This is what you believed, reminds the Corinthians that this message was the basis of their faith. It is the vehicle through which salvation occurred. It was the message and not another that they had believed when they became Christians. And anything else is just an innovation. Paul just calls them right back to that. He says, listen, as you evaluate, as, and he wants them to, no doubt, as he wants us to evaluate your life, how does it line up? As you approach this ministry, what does the gospel look like? Are you laboring in the gospel? Because this is, where it's, this is where it's at. It's part of what we do. Every preacher before labeled in the go- labored in the gospel, everyone who comes next labors in the gospel. Jesus gave it to his disciples, didn't he? Five times, Great Commission, labor in the gospel. Anything else is an innovation. We don't, we don't uh, corrupt it with our own words, our own thoughts. We put together exactly what Paul said was most important, and he handed it down to the church, and it still gets handed down today. That's our time, so let's close uh, our Bibles, just bow our heads. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and some introspection. Father, we thank you today for our time in the Word. We thank you for uh, allowing us to labor together in it. We thank you for earlier in the service where Alex uh, led us in worship in song. We thank you for that opportunity to do that. We thank you later as we worshiped in prayer corporate prayer as we labor together and worshiping in individual prayer at home and workplaces during the week. And Lord, we thank you that we labor in song and worship in song in private or apart from you because that's part of the fruit of the Spirit being made manifest. Songs, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in our heart with thanksgiving to the Lord. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for an opportunity to give of our material things where we really emphasize that you have provided everything and we worship you in that way. And Lord, thank you for the time that we were able to worship together and labor together in the word. 
And Lord, I pray as your Holy Spirit goes to work, as it always does, through the teaching, just the, just the simple reading of your word, that you might change us as you desire. That we will ask the questions that you uh, have seen, that it seems fit to have Paul reveal to us, the things that are in his own mind, things still relevant for us today. As we evaluate what we do and what our story is, we understand it's just your grace has accomplished everything. And Father, as we think about uh, our past and all of that, it just comes under the blood. And we think about um, our labor for you, that it is still producing fruit and not proving vain. And that we labor hard, that we own the ministry that we're part of, that we get involved with the ministry somewhere. If that's the case, you're not involved. We certainly can't make a case for you've already fulfilled it because Paul just went from task to task. And so he asks, as we see this application for us to do that as well, apply with diligence our spiritual gifts while we remain here. And so, Father, just do your work amongst us. Thank you for the many who labor so hard and are, do do the very things that we see here. Go from ministry to ministry, different outcomes, different spiritual gifts, different opportunities, and they take advantage of those things, and you help us to grow in those with the hardships and hard, uh, difficult people and all, whatever happens. Lord, I pray that you'll do your work, be glorified, help the church accomplish the work that you'd have us to do. Help us to work hard. We don't have to accomplish more than anyone else. We're not measured by that. We're measured by how we apply what we have. Help us to be found very faithful in that respect. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.